Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Kuhn Olde-Oldhoff, CEO of Alpha One. I was brought up with a understanding that if your NPS scores are higher, people are more likely to buy from you or more likely to stay. Yeah. If you look at the research, then that's not the case. People that give you a high NPS are still also likely you know, not to buy more. The only thing that you can really measure from that measurement is that if you have a very low NPS, that's a solid basis for people going away. If you look at all of the work that Byron Sharp did, where he looked at, it's an Australian professor of marketing who just looked at tens and tens of years of data and concluded that, okay, if you have a product that is physically available and mentally available, that will do very well. And and those are very data-driven, solid insights that most of the marketeers should know, but not all of them know. This is Kuhn. He started his career at KPMG in information risk management. He then moved to Gtronix, where he became responsible for digital identity management and later on IT services sales. When Gtronix was acquired by KPN, the largest telco in the Netherlands, he was asked to lead a process to turn KPN into an online organization. And shortly after that, he added marketing to his portfolio as well. Today, he's ranked as one of the top 10 marketeers in the Netherlands and the CEO of Alpha One. Alpha One is a fast-growing consumer neuroscience company that is on a mission to helping good companies make better decisions. Kuhn has a fascination for decision architecture. What drives people in their day-to-day choices? And how can we use neuroscience to decode this? Together with a team of scientists, he analyzes the brain reaction to content to predict market-level outcomes. And that inspired me. And hence I invited Kuhn to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the creative media and marketing landscape. We discuss why the traditional approaches don't work and why it's not technology, but more of an open mindset that prevents the route to success. Kuhn shares fascinating wisdom about what drives the behavioral change that lead to adoption and more sales. He also explains how exponential thinking helped them create the remarkable solution they have today. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how driving momentum is highly dependent on your ability to hit the right nerve, i.e. creating positive tension and desire with the right people. Secondly, by making things memorable is essential to influence behavioral change. Thirdly, how exponential thinking puts you in the right mindset to create transformational change in a market. And lastly, that if your customer doesn't say exactly, you don't have a deal. And that's all about finding the unfair thing that hurts your customer most. Hi, comrades. Welcome on my podcast today. Glad Hi. you could make it. Glad you could make the time to, yeah, from your busy schedule. Good to be here. It's indeed a podcast that I've been looking forward to for a number of reasons. But let's let's dive into that a little later. Raising the stakes already. Exactly. Yeah. Pressure. Breaking the stakes. Always raising the stakes. Yeah, I mean, your company, Alpha One, we're going to talk about that, the mission behind it, the big idea. But before we start, a little bit about you. 
if you would have to describe yourself in, in two or three words, what characterizes you as a person or, or entrepreneur? Independent, tenacity. I think those are two words that, that I feel comfortable with. All right. With. Haven't heard those before. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so you run the company Alpha One, yeah. and you do that from the Netherlands. Started the company, from what I saw, in August 2016. What is the big idea behind it? What's, what sparked the idea to, to start it? And yeah, well, I think it's, I'm not sure if there's actually like idea that sparked it. I joined the company when it was up and running almost about nine to 10 months. Started up by a guy that had a PhD in neuroscience at the Erasmus University. And the history is a bit, well, awkward. But I worked as a CMO for a large telco, a KPN, which is like a Dutch telco, like a Dutch AT&T or like Telefonica, you know, the, the big incumbent telco. And I got there by being acquired with the company that I worked before. It's like Gtronics. It was an IT service company. And that company actually acquired another company where I worked. So it's got a, I got acquired three, four times in a row. Yeah, and, uh, I have a background in technology. And I did some product marketing, sales, marketing. And then after redesigning digital for KPN across three divisions, the then CEO of KPN, Ilko Block, asked me to also add to that marketing function, which I did because marketing and digital were you know, becoming more intertwined. And there was a, let's say, a challenge at KPN to, to make it a bit more business driven. So there was quite a difference between sales, marketing, and more the connection, operational connection with the teams, plus more and more share of, of sales in a digital channel. And well, when I did that, you get a quite sizable budget in terms of media spend. And as a digital guy, you always want to know why things work and don't work. And the good thing about digital, apart from all its shortcomings, is that you are quite capable to find the culprit when something doesn't work. You just dive into the data and you, you'll find in the end whatever caused the positive or negative thing. And with the marketing activities, my big challenge was that, you know, it's very hard. You ask people, do they like your commercial? They say yes yeah, true. or no, and then you, you, you air it. Well, anyone who has ever been there, if you, if you do this on TV, you know, you, you talk about half a million, a million euros production, a couple of million euros in, in spend on a flight. And, and I was responsible for four or five brands. Most of those brands also went on TV. So that sort of adds up. But the predictability of the outcomes of these commercials, well, let's call it just crappy which annoyed me, but there's, there's no real good way because the more you ask people, the more answers they will give, but it's not predictive. And I ran into a guy called Alice Smits. He's a professor of marketing research at Erasmus University. He's actually the guy that coined the term neuromarketing somewhere in the early 90s, end of the 80s. Yeah. He was the first person that used brain measurements to predict whether or not you know you would actually buy a product or which package was best or which movie trailer would actually lead to most movie visits and during a meeting with him and the guy that i started alpha one with he told me you know i can predict pretty well whether or not this will work or not and to be really honest i was quite skeptic because <laughs> <laughs> yeah as we all are Yes. Well, if you have a hundred million plus budget, you suddenly have a lot of friends who have great ideas for you to spend all your marketing budget. So I said, well, I won't give you a couple of new ones. I'll give you a couple of old ones. And you just then, then tell me which ones of those old ones uh, performed really well. And he had that, yeah. quite, you know, he did it quite well. So I thought, okay, lucky shot with a couple of them. And then I gave him more of a different brand in the Netherlands. And he predicted those better than the first couple of ads and then I thought this is intriguing I started to work with them and I think the rest is a bit history I got quite excited I came home and my wife said you know you're whistling it's been a long time since I've heard that so one thing led to the other I joined the company I became the largest shareholder and well that's four four years ago already so that's sort of long. how we got there and, and we don't ask people anything we just measure how you respond subconsciously. We measure the where, where you look 
with different technologies, implicit tests, EG tests, which is, you know, you get a cap with electrodes. But we also use fMRI. I think we're one of the very few in the world that do that, where you look at the responses in the brain while people are in an fMRI scanner. And we try to model that. And then those models we try to build into a cloud-based service. So the first service that we've launched is something called expose.io with a Z. And what that does, it basically allows you to yeah, process an image or a video and then get uh, 95 plus accurate eye tracking results back, allowing you to see where the attention is most likely to go in an iterative manner and then change your content, your ad, your banner or your video accordingly. So this at the end, if I summarize this, is like heaven for marketeers or for, or for creative people yeah, to really understand whether what they are creating is first of all performing and then from their perspective, get some insights in terms of what to change to make it even better. Yeah, well, it depends on what type of creative you are. Some creatives are yeah, mostly going like this. Oh, you're going to tell me how to make something. And nine out of 10 times I say, I'm not going to tell you anything. I've worked long enough in the industry to have a very high regard for creative ideas. But I also know that if you make something, it's very hard to be independent and review it. So I'm just giving you a measurement. And actually, if you do it well, I give you the opportunity to make the best version of your creative concept. And so some of those designers and creatives and UX developers have the approach of, okay, tell me how it works. I can make a better ad or a better website or a better banner or an out of home or a point of sale. And some of them find it more, let's say, challenging to to measure their own work or to have a independent type of measurement or review work so it's a just like with the neuromarketing there's people some people are afraid of it there's lack of understanding which is usually what people are afraid of if they don't understand something well it becomes a bit scary like a virus for instance And But once they get the hang of it, they start to work at it. And now we, we see also creatives that take it also pre-research to their clients, which is a nice development. That's a very nice development, yeah. I mean, maybe it's also like seeing is believing. And yeah, I mean, this is the reason why I started my podcast in the first place. And you know, that's kind of share the compelling stories about the value that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. This is a good example of that again. Well, excellent example. Yeah, it's difficult. So, I mean, the people are still find it challenging to, I think, to truly find something new. You know, one of your existing basic assumptions has to go. Yeah. And only then you will find something new. And I think in the marketing industry, there's still a lot of you know, existing assumptions that people find very hard to let go. Can you name one or two? Well, I think one of the biggest that I always find interesting is Like NPS, you know, I was brought up with a understanding that if your NPS scores are higher, people are more likely to buy from you or more likely to stay. Yeah. If you look at the research, then that's not the case. People that give you a high NPS are still also likely you know, not to buy more. And the only thing that you can really measure from that measurement is that if you have a very low NPS, that's a solid basis for people going away. But the other ones, you know, growing market share, growing share of wallet type of, of things are completely non-existent in those measurements. And that's one. And the other one, I think if you look at all of the work that Byron Sharp did, where he looked at, it's an Australian professor of marketing who just looked at tens and tens of years of data and concluded that, okay, if you have a product that is physically available and mentally available, that will do very well. And, and those are very data-driven, solid insights that most of the marketeers should know, but not all of them know. And I think well, digital is another one. Everybody dives into digital. I think that the amount that the marketeers predict that people spend online versus what re in reality is being spent online is very different. So they live in the big cities in the center of Spain or in Amsterdam or in London, they, they work with Instagram and TikTok and that's where their focus is and this is where everything is going to happen. But if I go to the smaller village of my parents, which isn't even small, then, you know, media consumption is different. Probably still uh, also data-driven if you look at people like Mark Ritson, 
who say out of every 10 euro you spend, you should, should probably spend somewhere between six, five, six, seven, or even maybe more still on television because it will give you much bigger effect than online. Really? Uh, huge amounts of online fraud, big data sets available on that. Still marketeers keep on doing, let's say, a lot of the, the same things. That I think is a challenge or this is where the marketing industry is being caught up by the online industry. And yeah, people are lagging behind in the science that they take in or the knowledge that they take in. Yeah, at the end, it's like, I mean, of course, the world is moving and there's an extreme amount of noise. And uh, the big question is like, how do you cut through the noise? And I mean, the, one of the things that I always keep myself kind of a mirror is, okay, it's not about attention, it's about the connection that you make. So if you look at the technology that you're creating, is it more, is it about ensuring that you get the attention or is it that you ensure is it more about the connection part well the automated platform like expose is very much about attention i think uh, attention is a very interesting topic because it's just like the term trust attention is also one of those terms we talk about the attention economy and what i find interesting is if i ask people to define attention or or trust and it it's becomes quite difficult so it's one of those terms that yeah, true. people use but the definition of it is quite not there. And why is the definition interesting? Because if you look at attention, for instance, it's a very complex process. And you have bottom-up attention, you have top-down attention, you have senses that basically acquire data or information, your eyes, for instance, get it in. And then it goes in a couple of through a couple of layers where it gets integrated. And, and before it ends up in the front of your head and you can start, you know, actually seeing things or being aware of it, a lot of it has already happened. And you'll be surprised to the amount of commercials that we've tested with EEG that contain elements that people basically don't see, right? So they don't, yeah. they don't see it. And I always try to explain to clients that if I don't see it, I can't remember it. And if I can't remember it, it's not going to be recalled or influencing any behavioral change. So last week we, we delivered a rather big, to rather global company that had a, let's call it a purposeful element in their video. So they showed something about something that they do, which is good for society. And there's no doubt about it that this movement is good for society. And they actually developed a logo for that. The logo is visual for about a second and a half, but there's so much happening in that commercial at that time that out of the test, nobody actually sees the logo. Yeah. And then all of your efforts are quite in, in, in vain because it's you are working for a company every night and day. So you know the name, you know the brand, even your agency knows the name and the brand. But most of the people see a reel of 10 commercials or maybe more or maybe less. And, and you're just 30 seconds in there and then you have a second and a half. You know, so the actual opportunities that that gets seen is already lower. And then if the eye doesn't catch it, yeah, then it's, you know, you can just ask people, what did you see? They go like, I saw this, that, yeah, I saw this company's ad. Anything in particular? Well, it was again about the product they make. Yeah, no, no, nothing in particular. And then, you know, so you might be happy as a marketeer that you got your board so far as to put this specific logo in the ad, but the effect of it is, is almost zero. Zero. Yeah. Attention is a starting point. And then with the more advanced measurements, you can start measuring things like a desire or an approach or withdrawal. And those are quite strongly related to what we call market level impacts or sales. So we know that if your nucleus accumbens or your prefrontal cortex get really active when we measure you in your fMRI, you, you have a larger desire for this product and hence the sales results will also be higher. And I think that's an interesting result that the last five to 10 years has, has given us in terms of scientific papers. Yeah, true. By just measuring how people's brain respond to movie trailers, you can already predict which of those movies will do better than the other movies in terms of box office results. And I think that's a really nice area that still in, in its early stage, it's relatively expensive to do it. But our bigger, hairy, audacious goal is to automate that, just like we are now automating the eye tracking. And yeah. then if you can start adding 
how people respond to it in their brain as a predictive element. That's going to be interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're talking about that it's like a costly thing to do, but on the other end, creating a full movie and then have a have it go down the drain, no one coming, that's even more expensive. So it's all, in, it's all relative, right? Yeah, but it's, you, I think the biggest hurdle there is not that there's no scientific proof. The biggest hurdle there is that you have to decide that this is the way you want to go, meaning that we've tested for a large production house, for instance, format of a television program or several television programs, shorter, make it longer, what works, what doesn't work. And somebody has to decide that you're going to do this. And most of the time mm-hmm. you have a director or an owner of the, the concept and they find that very hard and difficult. Because they use Yes, I completely understand it. I am a fond photographer. And if you dislike my platform, I don't have any problems with it. But once you start talking about a you know, picture that I took from something I really appreciate and you dislike that, that's going to be much harder because it's closer to me, it's more personal, and hence it's a bit more challenging. I think the challenge there is to just you know, make people understand it. And sometimes we don't sell it to the creatives, we sell it to the salespeople who are usually up for, a, for anything to try if it has a potential of improving their numbers. Yeah. And once you can do that, then you have an easier discussion overall with the company. Yeah, that's an interesting thing in itself. So one of the things, the moment you start working with this, this type of technology, like what is the opportunity? What happens when companies start believing it, adopt it, and trust it? What do you see before and after? I think it's dependent on what they use it for. I think a big part of the work that we do is we measure commercials. And then you see just you get an increase in recall. So the Optimized commercial gets much better recall than the non-optimized commercial. But we also do packaging, for instance, so we can show that you know you have a higher increase if you optimize the package using fMRI. And for some companies, we get difference. But uh, one of the companies that we've been working for already quite for a long time is Van der Mortele. They're looking at the ways to, to improve their package by using different terms. And what you see often is that people try to improve a product by looking at reasons why people currently are, in, are not buying the product. And you could say, okay, I'm not buying the product because frying fat stinks. I have to clean it at the end of the evening and it makes me fat. So you make a frying oil that you know doesn't stink as much, is easier to clean, less fat absorption. But if you put all of that on a package, what we've seen is that it basically triggers all these networks of associations that aren't really positive. True. I think one of the key elements that I've learned in the past four years is that anything in your brain works in terms of associations that you have with it, any brand. And with that, yeah, there's room for improvement. So we know that if we trigger positive networks, instead of talking about fat and stink and easy to clean, we talk about friture, we take haute cuisine, and we take the cuisine out and we talk about haute friture, which is haute frying. It doesn't really make any sense. But apparently our brain understands these positive associations much better than these negative ones. But it's very hard to articulate that. But you can measure it. So those are the positive ones. And, and you also have, we also have a couple of clients that changed their packaging, did it in such a way that the end result lost them about 15% of their category, meaning that they introduced something really nice. It was designed very well, but... When people shop there, I wouldn't say they're like zombies, but you walk there, you take your favorite brands. At a certain point, you lost your favorite. Where's my favorite brand? I can't find it as a result of the fact that they lost, for instance, all their what we call iconic elements, so a specific color, a specific shape of the bottle. And they forgot about it and or they changed it. So I can't find it. I grab something else, you know, my favorite whatever chocolate favorite. chip yeah. isn't, isn't there anymore. So I take other chocolate chip cookies. And what happens is that when I get home, I really like those chocolate chip cookies as well. So from now on, that's my brand. And the people that you lose with that, and especially if you look in, in the categories where we're talking about, can be 10 to 15% in the worst cases. And there are some cases, I think Orangina has changed the package once, where it was really horrible. So they come to us and say, okay, maybe we could do a check. You know, We do an insurance check that it's, do people recognize it? Does it trigger the same amount of desire? 
We have specific visual tests to determine what the strong iconic elements are, and we can then measure that. And then it's sort of a safety insurance measurement to... True. This is always how it goes, right? It's the prediction, preventing versus the, yeah, the, it's preventing. the upside of things. Yeah, and we have like regular testing of commercials, but we also have a very big piece of research that's already been running a year where we put people in MRI scanners that are professional stock traders, and we see how their brains respond to portfolio information versus how they cognitively respond to, to it. And, and we try to figure out, can we see differences between how their brain reacts to the data versus how they react to the data. But that's something longer. We do that in conjunction with the Erasmus University, which is our, our, our formal partner. So it's a bit of quick online test about the strength of associations, a platform where you can optimize you know, images or video right up to the, let's take a year to dive into these bigger data sets to see if we can find a pattern or something that is predictive. Yeah, that's another aspect, of course, that it's often you need to test it with such a broad audience in order to get something that you can believe. And that's almost impossible. And that's where technology is really going to help. So it's always interesting to see what, like, on the journey to, to create a platform and to, to build a product. What have you done from the start to create something that delivers this remarkable value for customers? What have you done differently? Well, I think it's a bit of a corny answer. When I was working at KPN, I took a bunch of the people to the U.S. to do a trip, which I stayed a, a short while in the U.S. in Silicon Valley. At the end of the 90s, and I read a book by Robert X. Kringley. It's called Accidental Empires. It basically tells you in which restaurant and how, with what people in a small group, this entire Silicon Valley was started. And what I took from those trips is I really like the Google approach where they say, you know, the 10x so we were discussing what we want, wanted to achieve, and, and the idea was, let's see if we can automate it, because now it's relatively expensive and it takes a long time. So the reason why I didn't do eye tracking that much at KPN was not only the costs, maybe four or 5,000K, but it was usually at the end of the production process of the commercial where you always are too late. There's no time. Tomorrow it needs to be delivered to the media agency and has to go on air. You do your eye tracking and you go from well, I'm not aware something is wrong to, I'm aware that something is wrong, but I have no time anymore to change it, or I don't have enough material to change it. So we said, okay, can we change it? And then we said, yeah, if you could do it like in a continuous mode, that would already be helpful. And if it wasn't 5,000 euros every time, that would also be helpful. So our analysis was, if we can do this for, you know, if you have you pay 20 euros a month for images and 400 a month for video, then instead of doing one, for five, you can have a subscription for the entire year and then yep, produce as much video as you want. Well, obviously within a certain bandwidth because it's a very complex computational process that runs in the Google Cloud. Let me make a small interruption here. Kun just explained the essence of what drives remarkable value for his customers. The ability to turn the full production process on its head and know from the start whether a creative concept will work or not. This totally changes the paradigm in terms of the risk associated with often massive productions and the predictability on return on investment. It's a typical trait that remarkable software companies master. They aim to introduce a different approach instead of making the existing approach better. With that, they create a shift in value and introduce new norms of working. And you can master these traits as well. I have two options for you to start. Firstly, Read or listen to my book, The Remarkable Effect. You can find that on Amazon.com. Secondly, get into action right away and surround yourself by a group of like-minded people, tech entrepreneurs and CEOs that will help you remove your blind spots, explore new paths and sharpen your thinking. How? Just visit valueinspiration.com and see the videos where many of your peers share the experiences with our tribe and what they've come to value most. Back to the interview. So you have this 10x approach, and that's sort of what we started with at the beginning, which seemed completely unfeasible. But I think one of the things that I learned there is that, yeah, just keep on going and changing, trying, figuring out, and then in the end it works. And now we're much more busy in you know, tailoring it to different groups, people that do out of home, people do UX. So you come up with a business translation of this concept in the later stage. 
which I used to do completely the other way around. You know, you build a proposition, you think about yeah. the go to market and the per people around it, and then you look in technology. And so it's a bit different. I think those are two approaches that we took. And that, yeah, at least I took it from the work that I did there because you have more people that completely start from scratch, a very hands-on approach. Yeah, uh, true. I think Elon Musk is the, the best example of that. Exactly. Yeah, I was reading a nice article about him in, uh, I think it was in Wired, where he has this discussion about, okay, how deep can we dig for this boring company he's working on in 24 hours or something was the question. And then he said, okay, can we try it? Yeah, why can't we try it in our own parking lot? Well, we have to send out a mail, so everybody has to clean out the parking lot on Monday. And he just went on and he said, well, you know, WhatsApp everybody that the parking lot needs to be empty in an hour and get one of those drilling machines in there. And then, you know, within an hour and a half, I think all the cars were gone and they were starting with their first, I think, 12-hour drilling session on their own parking lot without any permits or whatsoever. Just started working on it and see, you know, in Dutch, we, we would say, see where the skip uh, stands. And it's great to take that type of approach. Yeah. yeah. It's the concept of just start. Yeah, just start, fail quickly and figure it out you know, along the way. The way. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what you did. And I admire that. And I really appreciate the 10x approach. I think you're doing it two ways, by the way. Like, first of all, 10x of the cost. And then likely an, out- an outcome that's going to be 10x the impact that you could possibly make if you were not doing it. Yeah, it's democratizing a space again yeah, to make a really, really advanced technology available yeah, to a larger audience. On the way of, of des- designing and, and creating the product, what have been decisions that have appeared to be really important on that journey? I think one of the decisions that we took is we've been developing, I think, to get an understanding of one, we have a bunch of PhDs, computer vision, neuroscience, those are the two main areas that I've mixed, which was a hell because they all have different terminology and they think about things different and they have different names for the same things and the same names for different things, especially in the first two years was horrible. But one of the major decisions that we took was in the developing process, we were doing business, consultancy type of business, testing your ads, testing stuff. And then we would work on the product development and then we would go back to the business and product development and that sort of creates a schizophrenic approach and where we initially said we're going to do everything ourselves we're going to fund it ourselves we at a certain point thought okay but why not give up a stake in the company get the financial room and the cash flow room to have a dedicated team working on this and get much more traction than we're doing right now i think that was one of the biggest change our decision that we made yeah so do you mean with this, this schizophrenic approach that it was are we a service company or are we a product company that type yeah. of well we knew what we wanted to be in the end but we also know that you need to get data and follow science and, and all all those elements that are really important because in computer vision for instance in in neural nets or generative adversarial networks developments are going so quick so you need to be in that field, but at the same time, then you don't develop quickly enough. That's the schizophrenic part. And when we started talking to the VCs in the first round, which we took quite some time because, yeah, I think I'm mid-40s, so you've been on the other side of things. You've acquired companies and you've seen a lot of that stuff. So you're a bit less under the influence of VC talk and you are a bit more opinionated as well, probably, and stubborn about what type of relationship you want with your money. But one of the VCs, it's one we didn't work with in the end. He said, yeah, you have to be really, you have to be aware that you're not going to be addicted to Coke. And I was like, what is he, what is he talking about? But in the end, I understood what he was saying. And we had really nice clients. So we talk about Vodafone, Heineken, Uber, Duracell, a whole range and we just we just started out right we were two years down the road and and wow. he said that must feel great right doing that for a client doing his assignment testing something and then you know going to the next one and he said to me that is like a coke addiction right it's like you get a good feeling you do your project you continue but you don't focus on you know your stand-up or where you need to go with the development and the developer that needs to do this full-time and the sprints and the Jira and the backlog. And those things tend to be 
forgotten a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that's something now we have one label on the platform and we have one label that does the research and it's dedicated labels with dedicated people. Yeah. Obviously we have some, yeah, there's some linkage between it, between the two, sure. but it has helped us a lot going quick. Get focus. Get focus, but also moving forward and then just making this decision. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, also, of course, with these large brands, one of the traps could also be that it becomes like a product, a very customized product for each customer. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the benefits you started out later with your startup is that you have so many scars already. Because I've been on the other end, end of things where you want to switch to another platform and it turns out that you've been you're into SAP from here to there with all sorts of connections that cannot be changed. And, and you know, it's... It's hell. And you say, I just want to do a, let's say, cloud Salesforce implementation or something else. You can't do this. You can't do this. Our systems are connected here. So no, when, when we started, we already said, we're going to not, you know, you can have, a, we can build a dedicated API, but it's going to be an API on the existing environment. And we can make a dedicated version of that environment, but it's still going to be a, it's still going to be the same thing as all the others. All the others get. We can train we can train the last layer with your data and you get your version of it, but it's not going to be a dedicated, separate product. Wise. Yeah. Very wise. So what have you learned selling this? You know, I mean, in a market that, yeah, maybe a skeptic, doesn't maybe even know about capabilities. Well, I think I learned two things. One is that I've been in sales and that took me back a couple of years to understand the, there's not a problem, right? And if there's not a, problem, then it's not going to be solvable. I don't use eye tracking. I use eye tracking or it's something new. And so we had to go back towards, okay, what are your, what is the unfair thing that hurts you in your day-to-day business? And for, let's say I'm making an ad, you could say, okay, you know, we understand you're making ads. We know it, creativity is very tough. It's very hard. We know you're boss probably gives you a hard time doing this and it's actually to be honest it's quite unfair that you get all this crap and you know you're doing your best to make this all work and then they go into the mode yeah yeah right you know and then before i know it it doesn't work and i've done it i said okay and then i'm going to give you a small little tool that can at least help you out you know to to test it and in a way you couldn't do before for a tenth of the budget and a tenth of the time and then you know, would that be helpful? Yeah, that would be helpful. And I think otherwise, if you take it the other way, you're going to say, I've built this great eye tracking platform. And you're like, yeah, who cares? I need to deliver something to... to you want to have one? <laughs> and I think the other thing is that, which was sort of something I realized when one of my clients said, the interesting part is getting into this neuroscience area is diving into this new area where you learn something, where you become a better marketeer by going through this process. And he said, there's this period before I learned anything from you guys in the neurospace and, and, a, and a period after. So we've done a bit of what, what I would call like a trend. It's like a bit of a transformation. So hey, I give you a nice way to understand this, but I also learn you something about yourself, how your brain works, how you make less errors, how your choice architecture can change. So it's like it's, you take people on a cognitive journey that makes yeah. them better at the work that they do. And they reduce their risks. And I think those are the two things that, that are stand out the most. And I completely agree because it's all about that transformation. And I so much agree with the fact that in many cases, people don't even see they have a problem. But it's in, it's in the articulation that you, that you get to that point. And I love the, the, the point that you made about that, that unfair thing that you have to deal with every single day. Because it, it summarizes it easily. And I've, I've learned that if they don't say exactly, then you don't have a sale. So if I describe to them the fact that there's always a bad guy, there must be some asshole somewhere. Otherwise, if you can't personify that person, it, you have no idea what happens because it's the guy that, well, asks you about the packaging or the timing or the tests or anything or your budget. And he needs to be the guy that tells you, yeah, you, you did the wrong introduction. You know, we did all this testing and we asked you what would be right. And now it doesn't work. Who gets to be blamed? you get to be blamed. And so you, you're looking for this, exactly. That's what happened to me or could happen. Exactly, yeah. I think that this unfair thing that you could say, well, it's not fair, right? Why should that happen to you? 
Yeah, exactly. Why, you know, I'm just trying my best here. I'm working for company. Exactly. exactly. And then at least you have some sort of a hook that you, that you can go into with, uh, with. And it's a very powerful hook. I mean, I, I, I posted one of the, my quote of the week. Every week I, I post a quote and this one it was about that people don't buy your, your product or your features. They buy the feeling yeah. that, that it gives them. And that's exactly what it does. And if you have a good understanding of what they are going through, how that feels, yeah. You got yourself something super, super powerful. Well, I mean, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, published it earlier this year. And I always like to ask people that are coming on my podcast what they believe are traits to create a, a software business that people keep talking about. I'd love to have your perspective on that. Well, I think that if people talk about it or keep talking about it, then, then it's sort of top of mind. So it needs to be in one way or the other, distinguishable. There are various ways you can achieve you can achieve that. But like I just said, the, the person that said to me, there's a period before and a period after, it, it means that it, it, it has done something for you. I think this is, it has done something for me, is a personal experience that I have that is influencing yeah, the perception. So I think when, when you... Well, let's talk about photography. At a certain point, you had different products. And then we had a cloud-based product where it's easier to administer, to process. I could do it on my phone, on my iPad, shoot it directly out of the camera. And it sort of, that was a really big changer for me. And I shared that with other people. So if you are remarkable, obviously, is you make remarks about it. So it's, you're so happy about it that you, that you talk about it. And those can be different things. It could be what the company is doing from a, in a wider societal context like Patagonia, or it could be one specific solution that you are really intrigued about. So Sony, for instance, with their cameras was the first to do eye autofocus. So instead of focusing on the face, they, they basically said, you know, which, what eye do you want with left, right, left eye, right eye, and then sort of tracks the eye. And, if you're a photographer, this is like amazing, right? You, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And then a year later, they came with face recognition. So you could say, I'm on doing a shoot on a marriage. And here's the bride. Here's the groom. I program them into my phone and or into my camera. And whatever shot I take, where are they in there? The camera automatically focuses on these two people. And they're always sharp, whatever happens. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's something, I think that is something that is where that works. And I think the integration of functionality with the device from Apple is one of those things where you are really eager to remark about it. It just works. It always works. Connect the printer, whatever. My wife, (laughs) she probably would like it if I say it, but she works with Windows. I mean, and and it's, if there's a problem in our home, (laughs) never with an Apple. It's never with an Apple. It's always with a, Surface with a printer or Bluetooth, whatever. And I think those are the things that make it, how do you call it? Remarkable. And that doesn't need to be something technological. I think there's a, the oldest company in the world is a company that sells rice puddings in a shrine in Japan. And it's 1100 years old. And it's already remarkable by itself. So it can can be all, all always. the genuine drive to talk about it or to share something about a product or a service, and in this case, a software a service. I think the number of software platforms that I talk about it, I share. I mean, I, I'm really fond of HubSpot. It's an amazing platform. And anybody who talks to me says, well, I'm starting my own company and I tend to do smaller investments in startups. And they say, we need to automate our sales. And I now oh, stop, HubSpot. Try the, yeah, the whole version of HubSpot, you know, you'll never be sorry. And those kind of things, until you have something new popping on, that is, that, that's, that's, that's true. Point. Yeah. It, it's that power. You can't have a budget, marketing budget. The moment you become focused on getting, becoming remarkable, you don't have to be big, a big company. It can be a small one. It doesn't have to be a big product. It can be a feature, but you cannot have a big enough marketing budget to, uh, to win against it. We have a big marketing budget. I think the Edsel automobile story in the States in the, in the yep. mid-end of 50s is a great example where they put so much money, so much effort in it. And if you if you read the, the stories about it, it's huge. But after two years, it just you know integrated it and it was over. It wasn't a bad product, but it just wasn't good enough. 
and you know you can put all the money behind it but if if the product stinks then exactly it's not exactly focus on the value focus on helping your customer make a difference and stay there because things of course move as well well from all the the lessons that you've learned in the in the past year being an entrepreneur running the company what are key lessons learned what is a piece of wisdom that you could share with other pe- people that are you know aspire to be ceo or want to grow their company to the next level well i think one of the things that i've learned is that I always was quite, let's say, a bit intrigued by people that had four people in their company and called themselves CEO. I worked for a CEO of a large company, several large companies. So I was like, these are two complete different worlds. Probably you need to do it to raise money. But my card said CEO and janitor. So it was like, if the roof leaks, somebody has to fix it and and you're the person that needs to fix it. But I think what I've learned is that I'm not sure exactly what his name is, but he wrote this great book and it's called The Messy Middle. Also, entrepreneurs that I've talked to who sold their company yeah, basically said, it's always messy. It's Scott Belsky now, I remember. Yeah, it. True. And it's always messy. So I think in the first couple of years, there were a couple of moments where I thought, I'm just going to crash this entire thing into a wall, right? Scientists couldn't get along. Clients stopped at the end of the year. I didn't manage my cash flow well. Everything you run into. And once you think, ah, things are going nice, you'll get knocked over by something from another side and then it goes up. So it's like, uh, it's messy, it's tough. But I also learned that change and help can come out of the most different areas. Also, you have to prepare well, but yeah, there are changes coming along from left and right that can help you out. I always think, and I always say to the people that I support, ask people to help you out. Everyone will say yes. No one will say no. And if they say no, well, they will say no. You have nothing lost. But exactly. I have a couple of people that ask to to be like a supervisory type of role. And they really enjoy it. And they get on their horse and they connect you to different people. So it sort of starts to help itself. But yeah, I think the other thing is that and just keep on going. I think it's the Winston Churchill. If you're going through hell, keep on going. And I think this keep on going, keep on going, keep on going is... And keep on going and keep on going. Even when you think it's not going to work, it's just try it. When I was responsible for sales at one of the companies, we, we sold uh, housing and hosting for e-business. And I learned from the data that, you know, people say no the first time, second, third, fourth is already becoming less. And fifth, most of the time, they'll do something. So if you figure a way out to keep in touch five times with someone without yeah. getting annoying which obviously is a balancing act true and you could make it fun by saying hey, i know you don't have anything right now for me but hey i saw this nice article so you and you give something you it will it will work out so it's also that that's why i say what determines you as an entrepreneur at the beginning is the tenacity you just keep on going whatever happens yeah. keep on going nobody has any faith anymore whatsoever screw them keep on going and also the independence, be independent. So you're like, you're going to connect neuroscience with machine learning. Yes. Well, good luck to you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't mean it, but thank you. And then, sure. yeah, maybe it, it will work. Maybe it won't. Yeah. I mean, I end my book with the line. Well, with, well, at the end of the book, I've got a line that I took from, an, from another startup and I, it really struck with me or, or inspired me. It all seems crazy until it's not. And like that's, that sums it up. Have belief in it, keep in there, and at some point you will prove the uh, you will prove different. Yeah, and it's not you have to keep on doing the same thing and expecting different results. But I mean, it's no. like okay, this doesn't work. The price is too high. Okay, how can we lower the price? We're not screwing up the rest of the company. And in that sense, it's like figuring it out. I think they, it's nicely called fail forward and quick and all those nice, great yeah. startup terms. But there's a solid base of truth behind it, where you where you just get something out of that. That's true. Very true. So what is next for you? Where do you want to take the company in the next 12 months or 24 months? In our current market, it's interesting. Six months. (laughs) Well, I I believe in six months. In a sense, I have a long-term view. We want to automate those processes so people can, you know, make, we help companies make better decisions. That's what we do. And it's based on data from your your brain or visual data or, and that we want to automate. And that's our long-term story. I think for those next six months, it's growing the exposed platform is, is the biggest one for me because in the current market situation, the 
consultancy is quite fluctuating, but that means that we want to ramp up the platform and we have an, our numbers are growing. We're going to do a new round of growth funding. So the more my recurrent revenue is growing, the better it is. So that's my, my one and only focus. I very much work with like three things that I do. That's it. And the rest is on the list. And until one of those three things is out, it doesn't pop in. When we talk to the team, what that is. And that can be, I have to deliver a podcast this week and make one for myself, or it can be, I have to finish a product sheet or anything. That works really well because you get this delivery-based process that feels good because you finish something very well. So the first next six months is six months is really on, on growing the platform. Very well. I mean, that's like also the advice in the top three on the list and stay there and deliver it. Because it's all about making progress. So where can people go to find out more about Alpha One or to say hi to you? Alpha One is www.alphaalph.one where you can just find us as a company. This is like the research place or anything you shoot there, I'll, I'll see it popping by. And the rest you can see on Expose, which is www.expose.io with a Z. And then you have the platform, you can set up a trial account or organize a demo with one of our product owners. Yeah. Or you just shoot a mail at kuhn at alpha.one and that will work as well. Very good. Well, thank you, Kuhn. Kuhn Rat, to Well, the lessons that you learned me, I know a great deal more about yeah, the world that you live in and how also the brain works with, with advertising and creative work. I like the style that you have, the perception and, and how, you, how you took on the product and how you moved it forward. I love the story about tenacity and being independent. So I think there's a couple of, a couple of good takeaways here to ponder upon. Yeah, nice. Thanks for the opportunity to share. Maybe in a year's time, we do it again, see where we are. Exactly. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye. And this ends my conversation with Kuhn. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Kuhn Olde Oldhoff, CEO of Alpha One. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise, and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.